Vaults. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. This week on OFTV, we're taking a trip back in time to the 18th century and across the pond to England. During a time of war and the rapid expansion of England as a global colonial power, the few public appearances of people living cross-gender lives remain the objects of extreme scandal. Thanks to an anonymous pamphlet now attributed to Henry Fielding, of which only half a dozen copies seem to have survived, one such scandal is known to us, however obscurely, today. This story is particularly relevant given the increase in cases of so-called gender fraud in the UK since 2012, in which young trans men and some female assigned at birth people experiencing gender confusion are being charged for not disclosing their trans status to partners. The legal framework behind these charges, sexual assault by way of fraud, is the same framework used in Canada to prosecute people living with HIV for non-disclosure, a fact that has long held my attention as both an artist and an activist. This case we'll discuss today is perhaps one of the earliest examples of this legal framework being put to use. So sit back and listen as we dive into the life or lives of Charles Hamilton, or perhaps George Hamilton, known to history and Wikipedia as Mary Hamilton Transvestite. I've heard there was a secret card that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? Goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Where to begin? Well, it's hard to say. Mary Hamilton or Molly Hamilton or perhaps Charles Hamilton, or George Hamilton, was born in 1724, or maybe 1721, in Somerset, or maybe the Isle of Man, to a Mary and William Hamilton. I should warn you here, nearly everyone in this story is named Mary, and it is going to get very confusing. To keep things clear, I'm going to refer to our hero as Charles Hamilton, the name he used up until the time of his arrest and conviction. Why do these accounts differ so dramatically? 
Well, we basically have three accounts to go by. Charles's deposition to the court, his young bride Mary Price's deposition, and the female husband. A 23-page anonymous pamphlet written by English satirist Henry Fielding, supposedly taken from her own mouth since her confinement, as it says on the title page. Published just a month after Charles's conviction, it's hard to say whether or not Fielding actually interviewed Charles, whom he refers to as George, or simply took the basic idea and filled in the blanks to suit his comedic needs. Or perhaps Fielding did visit Hamilton in jail and Hamilton simply changed his testimony. It's impossible to know. Either way, we can say for sure that Charles was born somewhere between the years 1721 and 1724, probably. Fielding's somewhat questionable account describes Hamilton's father as follows, quote, her father was formerly a sergeant of Grenardiers in the foot guards, who, having the good fortune to marry a widow of some estate in that island, purchased his discharge from the army and retired thither with his wife. Given that the entire Manx heritage idea is contested by Hamilton's own deposition, we can probably guess that none of this is true. This account also claims that Hamilton's mother bore no other children, which strongly conflicts with the court record. According to Hamilton's deposition, he was born in Somerset and the family later moved to Scotland. Around age 14, Hamilton stole his brother's clothing and absconded to Northumberland, where he assumed the name Charles. There, Charles entered an apprenticeship under the tutelage of Dr. Edward Green and later Dr. Finney Green. These so-called doctors were actually quack doctors. Let's take a moment to explore exactly what that means and why the young Charles Hamilton chose this path for himself. Quack medicine hit its peak in the 18th century, particularly in England and France, whose medical regulations were, let's say, lax in the extreme. It wouldn't be until 1858 that England would finally bring in the type of strong regulations that had long kept quack doctors out of Russia and Austria. Quack doctors filled a gap in the available health care at the time as properly trained doctors were expensive and did not readily have cures for every ill. Quack doctors, like the later American snake oil salesmen, would swoop down during a cholera epidemic or plague and sell cheap solutions to every need, all while knowing that none of them had any real effect. In particular, quack doctors were known for making salves. The word quack actually derives from the Dutch quacksalver, which means one who quacks or boasts about the virtue of his salves. They relied on the strength of their charm to convince patients, both rich and poor, to try their methods. Many of these methods are still sold today under the banner of holistic wellness, such as x-ray therapy, the use of magnets, and the selling of tinctures, and, you guessed it, salves. Our young hero, Charles Hamilton, chose this path. But why? According to Fielding, Hamilton had met a neighbor girl in the Isle of Man by the name of Anne Johnson. 
Johnson seduced Hamilton after she traveled to Bristol, where she, quote, became acquainted with some of the people called Methodists and was by them persuaded to embrace their feet. Again, this is almost definitely not true. It seems that Fielding made up this story wholesale to take a swipe at the early Methodists. Methodism, strongly associated with the mostly maligned working class, had only come into existence around this time and was frequently accused of fanaticism due to their enthusiastic preaching methods. So we can probably discount Johnson's seduction as anti-Methodist propaganda. In case you're wondering, the probably fictional Johnson runs off with a Methodist man and Hamilton begins dressing as a man to impersonate a Methodist teacher. Wild. More importantly to our question is the role of people perceived as women in the 18th century. While women have always had roles practicing healthcare, both officially and unofficially, during this time period, most women were limited to midwifery and related concerns. Being a doctor was the provenance of men, cis men. Whether or not Charles Hamilton identified as a man internally, he would have known that someone assigned his sex at birth would not be readily accepted into the world of proper medicine. It is not hard to imagine that quack doctors, whose work was largely based on purposeful deception, probably didn't have the most rigorous standards as to whom they trained and socialized with. Should they have discovered Charles Hamilton's birth sex, would they have even cared? The next five, or maybe ten, years of Hamilton's life are largely unknown. Fielding's account had Hamilton sailing to Dublin, getting into many sexual misadventures along the way with a host of merry widows, who all came close to discovering his secret in one way or another. He even marries one, a Mrs. Rushford, the 68-year-old widow of a cheesemonger. Rushford is shocked to discover Hamilton's sex, and Hamilton flees back to England. Fielding's largely fictional version of Hamilton is a gallivanting, womanizing cad. So, basically, my kind of guy. In the iconic words of Adore Delano, Party! Back to what is more likely the truth, Hamilton apprenticed under the two quack doctors for a number of years before setting off to begin his own unlicensed practice. Did he have lovers along the way? It's hard to say. Hamilton was unlikely to further incriminate himself in his own deposition, so if he had had any, as Fielding asserts, he didn't mention them in his deposition. We'll come back to this idea later. Hamilton landed in Wells, coming there from Devonshire, suggesting that Hamilton had in fact moved around a bit since his apprenticeship in Northumberland. Here, he intended to set up his practice, and to that end moved into lodging provided by a Mrs. Mary Creed, or, if you believe Fielding's account, a Mrs. Baytree. Mary Creed's niece, Miss Mary Price, see, I told you there were more Marys in here, also lived with her at the time. Fielding writes, probably incorrectly, that Hamilton actually met Price at a dance, 
that they subsequently exchange letters, which he provides, and then begin a formal courtship. Here is, according to Fielding, the letter Hamilton sent to Mary Price. My dearest Molly, excuse the fondness of that expression, for I assure you, my angel, all I write to you proceeds only from my heart which you have so entirely conquered and made your own that nothing else has any shine in it. And, my angel, could you know what I feel when I am writing to you, nay, even at every thought of my Molly, I know I should gain your pity if not your love. If I am so happy to have already succeeded in raising the former, do let me have once more an opportunity of seeing you, and that soon, that I may breathe forth my soul at those dear feet where I would die willingly if I am not suffered to lie there and live. My sweetest creature, give me leave to subscribe myself. Your fond, doting, undone slave. End quote. Fielding then writes, quote, her mother being ill prevented her going out that day, and the next morning she received a second letter from the doctor, in terms more warm and endearing than before, and which made so absolute a conquest over the unexperienced and tender heart of this poor girl that she suffered herself to be prevailed on by the entreaties of her lover to write an answer which nevertheless she determined should be so distant and cool that the woman of the strictest virtue and modesty in England might have no reason to be ashamed of having writ it, of which letter the reader hath here an exact copy. Mary Price, referred to as Molly in the above letter, then sends this note, full of misspellings that speak to the supposed naivete of Price, back to Hamilton. Quote, Sir, I has received both your two litters, and for I am much surprised hat that loaf you pretend to half for so pure a girl as me, I cannot believe you will disgrace yourself by marring such a youth as me, and sir, I will not be the whore of the gratest man in the country, for though my virtue is all I has, yet hit is a potion I am resolved to care to my husband, sunu more at present, from your humble savant to command. End quote. <laughs> Both of these letters were almost certainly fabricated, along with several others that appear throughout the text of the female husband. What seems more likely is that their courtship began when Hamilton moved into Mrs. Mary Creed's lodgings in 1746. On July 16, 1746, Mr. Charles Hamilton wed Miss Mary Price. The two joined together by a Reverend Mr. Kingston, Curate of South Cuthberts in Wells. Hamilton was either 20 years old or closer to 25, it's hard to say. 
It's unclear how old Mary Price is at this time, though we could safely assume, given the courtship patterns at the time and the way Fielding describes her, that Price was the younger of the two. In Wedded Bliss, the two set out traveling across Somersetshire for three months as Hamilton sells his fake medicines. During this time, according to Mary Price's deposition, they have sex multiple times. Hamilton, quote, entered her several times, end quote, perhaps by means of a dildo or a similar device, but which was at least initially convincing to the virginal Price. However, as time went on, Price started to become suspicious of her new husband. When they reached Glastonbury, Price confronted Hamilton. Here's another place where Fielding's account differs from Price's and Hamilton's depositions. According to Henry Fielding, news of Hamilton's birth sex and womanizing ways finally caught up to Mary Price's mother, who reports this to authorities. Price's deposition, on the other hand, claims that Price confronted Hamilton at Glastonbury, where Hamilton, quote, admitted the truth. Price then reported the matter to authorities and had Hamilton arrested on the 13th of September, 1746. Hamilton was taken before the quarter sessions, the local courts at Taunton, Somerset. Both Hamilton and Price gave depositions during the trial. According to the Newgate calendar, the justices stated that, quote, the he or she prisoner at the bar is an uncommon, notorious cheat, and we, the court, do sentence her or him, whichever he or she may be, to be imprisoned six months and during that time to be whipped in the towns of Taunton, Glastonbury, Wells, and Shepton Mallet. This article in the Newgate calendar is interesting because, like Fielding's account, it suggests that Hamilton's marriage to Price was not his first. The headline reads, quote, A woman who was imprisoned and whipped for marrying 14 women, 1746. The first paragraph begins sensationally, quote, Polygamy or a man marrying two or more wives, and vice versa, a woman marrying two or more husbands, is a crime frequently committed. But a woman marrying a woman according to the rights of the established church is something strange and unnatural. Yet did this woman, under the outward garb of a man, marry fourteen of her own sex? The article ends with the note that Mary, the monopolizer of her own sex, was imprisoned and whipped accordingly in the severity of the winter of the year 1746. The accusation of 14 marriages total seems to originate from a Mr. Gold, the prosecuting attorney, as related in the Bath Journal, the local newspaper at the time which published three articles on the trial and conviction of Hamilton. While imprisoned, the nature of Hamilton's case attracted many from all around the area who came to look at and probably heckle Hamilton in prison. He's described as being, quote, bold and impudent. These newspaper accounts also state another possible birthplace for Hamilton, 
Yeovil. What happened to Hamilton after his release and repeated whippings is lost to history. Similar cases in the 19th century show that people often moved to a new city and continued living cross-gender lives, but we have nothing to base speculations on here. Similar cases of so-called female husbands can be found throughout history. Thirteen years after Hamilton's conviction, a Samuel Bundy, also known as Sarah Paul, was arrested and sent to Southwark Bridewell for the crime of defrauding his bride. Though, interestingly, it is suggested that his bride was actually fully aware of his birth sex, and it was only the neighbors who reported on them. Hamilton has lived on, primarily through academia, that has alternately placed him and other female-assigned-at-birth people living cross-gender lives as early lesbian and or feminist pioneers. The argument there being that living openly as a lesbian was not possible at that time, and so people we might call butches today took on a male role. Or that professions, including quack doctoring, were closed to women, and so women who were driven by relentless ambition overcame these sexist societal ideas by dressing as men in order to follow their career dreams and escape the patriarchy. In order to believe either of these, you have to believe that internally, Charles Hamilton and people like him thought of themselves as women. This is impossible to know for certain, as we have little record in most cases of what these people had to say about themselves. The records we do have, such as the depositions most of this episode is based on, come through the court system where there's a strong likelihood that they were altered to reduce the possible sentence or even coerced. What we know for certain is that people who made the decision to live their lives as men went to great lengths to achieve and maintain these lives and often continue to do so even when facing state persecution. We cannot say with any surety that these were women or that they were lesbians. Perhaps some were. The only thing we know is that they lived their lives as men and wanted to be respected as men. It seems that most of these people would today call themselves trans men. Gender fraud cases are on the rise in the UK, where police are arresting young trans men and other complicatedly gendered female-assigned people who are entering into relationships with girls. There have been a number of similar cases in Canada and the United States over the past 15 years as well. This should deeply concern all of us because these cases rest on the idea that withholding trans status vitiates consent. And in the UK, charges have been brought for acts as simple as kissing. According to this logic, cis people's incorrect assumptions about our anatomy or gender history are protected by law, while trans people's right to exist is a threat to white womanhood. 
several of those convicted of these offenses in the UK were made to register as sex offenders for life, highlighting the unnecessarily punitive nature of sex offender registries on the lives of the already marginalized. As we move into a world that increasingly accepts the reality that trans people exist as part of everyday life, we may in fact see more and more such cases. I believe that we must remain vigilant against allowing the state to control when trans people must disclose our gender histories and to whom. If you want to learn more about this issue, check out the work of Alex Sharp, which I'll link to in the show notes below. Feminist icon, butch lesbian pioneer, or simply a man trying to live his life in a time before transsexual medicine was available, Charles, or George, or Mary, or Molly Hamilton, help lay some of the brickwork for all of us to exist today, over 350 years later. And for that, I salute him. Thank you for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, i.e. helping me pay my rent, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you She tied you to a kitchen chair She broke your throat and she cut your hair And from your lips she drew
Baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room and I've walked this floor. You know, I used to live alone before I knew you. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch. And love is not a victory march. It's a call and it's a broken hallelujah. 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 God above, all I've ever learned from love was how to shoot somebody who I drew. Yeah. It's not a cry that you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a call and it's a broken hallelujah. Alle 